This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. So, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast, episode number 196, the 18th century Welsh Bardic Revival. It's been an interesting week for myself as uh, I've had a lot of uh, sickness. You might still hear it in my voice, so if you still hear me being very bassy, you know why. <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, we did our best to try and get an episode out today, so hopefully you guys uh, will find it interesting. Also, as a reminder, our 200th episode is coming towards the end of September. Please, if you have any questions or you want to suggest ideas, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. Let me know what you think. And certainly, if you have questions, please ask them. I will probably do a combined video and uh, audio podcast that day to try and uh, give you something to see as well as to hear. Uh, as well, we've uh, started our, our own specific Welsh History YouTube channel. So we have the uh, youtube.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. We'll get you to the page if you want to give us a subscription. Currently, we're uploading on a daily basis past episodes of the audio podcast. I'm hoping in the future to add some actual video content uh to kind of uh, make it worth the while to subscribe and check it out. And hopefully we can kind of transition from there. I may do more as we go forward into the third season or the 300s. I will probably consider doing more video-related podcasts as I kind of find ways to supplement this particular podcast. But anyway, with all that said and done, let's get to it with the episode. With the arrival of the 18th century, the understanding and love of the culture of Wales was reaching a new point. As more and more printed works were being released in Welsh, there were more and more Welsh-speaking and Welsh-reading people. I know we often talk about how English had become the dominant language in almost every part of life and in the business and political worlds of Wales, but that is not to say that the majority by any means spoke or read English as their first language. In fact, I would argue for many years that was definitely not the case. Uh, in the churches and with the regular people, Welsh was the primary and in most cases only language. Religious education created more literary Welsh speakers as the decades passed. These men, and they always pretty much were men, were motivated by a desire to save people's souls. So in order to do this, they wanted to reach them any way possible. As a larger example of this, Carmarthenshire preacher Griffith Jones was one of the many traveling educators who were looking to spread the word of God through literacy. 
If you read the Bible, you could make it easier to understand and convert to its teachings, or at least understand the philosophy. This was, of course, a philosophy we saw that had begun with the Puritans, and slowly other religious groups had picked up this idea in the previous century, and it had expanded exponentially only a hundred years later. Jones was born around 1684 in Penboer, Carmarthenshire, to a God-fearing family. He started his adult life as a sheep herder, and by adult, of course, we mean probably as a young teenager, before making up his mind to become a clergyman. After a number of false starts, he reached his goal around 1708. He spent a number of years working in his faith, first in educating people about Christianity before hitting on his real desired calling. In 1731, he began to show an interest in the circulating schools, which had become popular at the time. These are schools we have talked about in the past. Jones, in 1734, set about organizing a system to teach children and adults basic reading skills in Welsh in the shortest time possible. His aim was to have the basics of literacy established within three months. He would then move on to new locations to begin, of course, doing the same process again. The focus of the curriculum was on the Anglican Catechism and the Bible. These were the only textbooks he used. Like the previous programs, which had come before, he was funded by wealthy patrons, and he used these to cover his expenses while the traveling school would soon reach almost every part of Wales. As we discussed previously, that gave them an advantage over the more structured academies because they could reach rural communities easier and needed less supplies and didn't need funding from the local population to work. The language taught was usually Welsh, although English was used in areas such as South Pembrokeshire. It is estimated that almost half the population, or around 200,000 people in Wales, had attended Minister Jones's schools by the time of his death in 1771, which is a staggering number by any measure and effectively comes out to nearly half of the population of Wales was taught by Minister Jones at some point in their lives. This effort bore fruit, however, as by the second half of the 18th century, Wales was one of the few European countries to have a literate majority, importantly, a literate Welsh reading majority. So successful was the project that it attracted the attention of Catherine the Great, the Empress of Russia, who in 1764 commissioned a report on Griffith Jones's schools. So, what does this have to do with new bardic traditions? Well, if you think about it, in the past, most of the bards and poets were forced to rely on rich people patrons who loved to hear about their fame and fortune and fantastic ancestries. The real or imagined as they might be, these ancestries were important to them and bragging about them was a key point. Having a literate country meant more and more people were wanting more than just the Bible to read, and it was in that space that the new form of poetic bards arrived. Well, we're not able to talk about all of them, let me at least focus in on a few of the more famous or infamous, depending on where you sit. Probably the most prominent person in this list, and one who is not without controversy, is Edward Williams, 
Born in the parish of San Carfan, Glamorganshire, like many in that county, his first language was English. As with many others who were learning to read and write, he had a desire to continue to grow his education and to study not just the history of England or in the poetry and writings of English, but also the history of Wales, and through this he developed a love of the Welsh language. The literature, as well as the history of Wales, became a passion of his. He received, according to himself, no official education, and he apparently learned to read while watching his father carving headstones. I'm going to hesitate to qualify everything as truthful because, well, you'll see in a minute, the character in question is a bit doubtable as to his explanations for things when we'll see why in a minute. He would eventually follow his father into the profession and became a stonemason. Yet, even while he plied this trade, he continued to revisit his love of Welsh poetic tradition and began writing his own poems. If we were just talking about his additions to poetry and his additions to other contributions to Welsh culture, I think we'd have someone that would be considered the the chief example of modern Welsh culture. Unfortunately, we have to get into a lot of other things to get there. And yeah, just be aware of all this as this name is becomes clear. If you don't know who Edward Williams is, he eventually chose his bardic name, which he named himself Yola Morganog. Yola was short for Yorworth, which is the Welsh for Edward in English. Like many Welsh people before him, he would travel to work in London from 1773 and again in 1777. And in his time there, befriended a number of poets who, in both English and Welsh, were significant contributors to poetry. He got well known amongst various societies in London that were growing and forming. All of these different societies, of course, we've talked in some detail about some of them in the past. They become important because they're twofold. One, they're talking about culture, language, history, but also they are secretive somewhat in nature. They kind of start about the same time as the stonemasons. So there is some affinity to that idea about having a secret club wherein you know and understand secret things. And that is key to what we're going to talk about with him and his flights of fancy. Let's just call them what they are. And through all this, he became obsessed with Welsh history, of course, as I said, and language, and of course, the culture. All of these things were being discussed quite heavily in London at the time. Yolo became famous in the literary world and began to produce manuscripts that, in his cadence and along with a friend of his, was proving the history and traditions of Druids from Wales and their descendants, who are the bards who these traditions were passed down to. The idea that these 
survived Roman, Anglo-Saxon, and Norman invasions and conquests and generally were passed down through oral traditions to survive basically what amounts to about 1,800 years to get here. Somehow, let's be fair and say that's highly doubtful. Um, and as we're going to talk about, unfortunately, our fabrications. His entire ideas around all this created effectively a historical fiction that his bards and their druidic ancestry were actually legitimate, that they happened at certain times, that you did certain things, and they have a lot in common with sort of the stonemason secretive societies, you know, where you do certain performances in order to qualify and become a member of the group. And it, it's so out there and not in any accordance with history that you get very frustrated with him because of it. All the while, he's creating a massive change in Welsh culture, society, in the drive towards actual history and a drive towards what would become antiquarianism in Wales. The study of archaeology would come out of all this. There's so many things that come out of this that are such positives that come out of a massive negative. It reminds me so much of, of Joffrey of Monmouth that it's equally as frustrating and you get equally as angry about it because you feel like it's deceiving people who don't know any better, who just come upon his writings and just believe them because they have no other concept or understanding as to why his writings would be dubious or doubtful. And his fame, of course, helped spread that. Of course, as he became famous and as he became more and more well-known, he would claim that he had acquired documents and had been taking them from written documents and translating them into printed material as a copyist, that he had contributed, you know, legitimate history to Wales from these poets and bards. He claimed he'd gotten all sorts of, you know, unique ideas about druidic performances from these, in quotes, ancient peoples, which turned out to just be from a very fevered imagination. And part of his problem is, is he had an addiction to drugs that was causing him to get into a big problem with his money and his lifestyle was always a little bit large and all of that kind of came back to haunt him. And in between 1786 and 1787... He spent a period of time in Cardiff's debtor prison as he was in debt to the tune of about three pounds. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, 
or vegan and veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. While he was in prison, he was using the drug known at the time as Ladunum for his back pains, in quotes. This particular drug is a tincture of opium containing approximately 10% powdered opium by weight. This would, of course, create a very heavy addiction to these and other drugs, which wasn't really uncommon in that society of out of London. There was, a, a, opium becomes, as we move along, a very infective drug in society in Britain. And you can see it in writings that go back to the beginning of the 20th century and at the end of the 19th century, where you see things like Sherlock Holmes, as an example, was addicted to opium. There was stories within that particular series where he goes into opium dens and they are taking various things. He's addicted to cocaine and all sorts of other drugs. I think that's kind of be, gets its beginning in this era. And this is an era as well, remember, when Britain is expanding its colonizations out from just the New World into India, Afghanistan, several attempts are made to take Afghanistan, uh, Pakistan, which of course is a part of India at the time, 
you know, all of these areas become areas that are taken by the British uh, initially from the French, but then expanded upon it. And all the trade that comes from that, one of the big trading points along with tea is the trade in, in opium. And a lot of people who've gone to these places come back with this drug and are spreading it amongst society. And of course, if you see it as something that helps you get through the day or as something that could help you from a ability to create, it might have a rather nasty side effect of getting you very hooked on it. So all of these things keep in mind while we discuss this, and it will become fairly common because there's very little regulation at this point in time. It was, in fact, while he was in this prison that he ended up writing the Orset of Bards of the Islands of Britain, which basically was a story of the so-called ancient druids, and it relied a lot on his concept and ideas about what these ancient druids had done. In reality, it was, of course, a complete fabrication from his own clouded mind. In 1789, he published Barthoniath David Ap Willem, or David Ap Willem's Poetry, a collection of poems by the 14th century bard David Ap Willem. This was well received by the public, however, it has been shown to be a book containing several poems that have no connection to the poet that's been named as the head of the book, and because, of course, Yola wrote him himself. It's at this point in time, while he's in London, Yola engages with the Gwynithiogan society where he's ready to spread the word of his druidic bards and they generally believed him he fabricated a completely imaginary lineage for the london welsh he rewrote history and noted that the bardic traditions began with the druids and he would go on to say that this learning known as barthas was then passed down through oral and musical traditions from teacher to disciple and he himself had the privilege of inheriting this learning. Honestly, this inventiveness and willingness to fabricate history made him very dangerous in areas where discoveries of ancient texts and manuscripts were gaining more and more attention. It was in that way, as I said earlier, he was very similar to Geoffrey Monmouth in creating a whole cloth histories for the ancient Britons where there was no evidence of such. After 1794, Yola lived off of his writings and through grants from various societies at, had various levels of success. As his interest in Druids grew, he arranged a ceremony on Primrose Hill in London on Albion Heffin, in other words, June 21st, around the summer solstice of 1792. A circle of stones was formed with a larger stone in the center and this was called the Gorseth Stone. Members were then inaugurated by the Gorseth, including Dr. William Owen Pugh, Walter Machean, who was a student at Oxford, as well as David, Dr. David Samuel, who had been on board the Discovery, amongst many other people. 
While no one wore the white robes that we come to associate with the druids of today, the ones that are involved in the summer solstice now, there was still of an idea of ceremony, as Iola tied green, blue, and white ribbons to the arms of those who had been made members. This whole process was called ancient by him, but of course it was from his own imagination. In 1795, the first of these corsets were held in Wales on Alban Ilir, or March 21st, in the spring equinox in Stallingdown near Cowbridge, the Vale of Glamorgan. Iola's driving ideas, which would have more to do with the Celtic revival of the next century and the desire to create a legacy of Welsh literacy, it would, of course, reach back to this so-called ancient past and these ideas of what these ancestors did or thought. On the other side of the line of poetic traditions, we'll now turn instead to someone of much more simple means, I would argue, by the name of Anna Williams. Anna was born in Rosemarket, Pembrokeshire, to Zachariah Williams, a scientist and a physician, and his wife, Martha. Zachariah had actually been involved in trying to understand and define longitude and was fairly well known in the scientific community in and around England at the time. Her father, of course, because of this education, provided her with a wide range of artistic and scientific studies, as well as language studies in Italian and French. By 1726 and 27, the family had moved to London, staying at the Charter House, where Anna helped her father while he experimented with magnetism in the pursuit of longitude prize and became his helper at home when he became bedridden and hospitalized in 1745. Anna by then had developed cataracts in her eyes, which had left her mostly blinded. Despite this, she still served her father and in that time published a translation of a French life of the Emperor Julian in 1746. With the problems due to her father's medical issues piling up and the fact that there was not a lot of income coming in, she would need help from a rather famous source. The poet and creator of the modern of the first English dictionary, Samuel Johnson, would become a person who was significant to her for the rest of her life. She would help for the most of the time with the expenses and bills that Johnson created. She was then effectively the manager of all of these things and kept this for Johnson as well as kind of keeping him financially while he kept her strong physically and mentally. During her time with him, she wrote a few works of poetry, including the Miscellanies in Prose and Verse, published in 1766 as a quarto edition by Thomas Davies, with Johnson adding a preface and several prose and verse pieces himself, something that, of course, the... Let's just put it this way. The people who didn't like it, her very much, trying to argue that it was only because Johnson gave pity on her and basically funded the publication that it got published at all. But she did make money from this, so it was not unpopular. And due to this, she would 
become relevant in a time period when a lot of English and Welsh poets were reaching the scene and becoming very influenced by the ongoing developments that were shaking society. Remember, this is at a time when we're not far from the War of Independence in the United States and then succeeded a little later by the French Revolution, which in and of itself created an earthquake in Europe that would drive a lot of change all across Europe and in a lot of ways create a lot of the new philosophy and thought process that went on in the Victorian era that was to come. The last person we're going to talk about today in this episode is Owen Gornui, who was born in 1723 in Llanfair, Anglesey. He was considered the founder of modern bardic poetry as part of the Welsh Renaissance of the 18th century. While I am by no means a person to talk about poetry or any part of it, you'll notice I haven't been talking about meter or other things here Mostly because, if we're honest, my college English teacher thought I was pretty lousy at poetry, and I can't disprove him on that. So, we will talk about it, but understand that I don't always understand exactly what all this is. So, we'll do our best. It's like trying to explain the inside of a car to me. I'm not, you know, I always say, I'm a toaster person. If I know it works, I'm happy. (laughs) Uh, According to others who actually understand this... His contributions would breathe new life into two bardic meters, the Kinwith and the Oldwith, as he would use them for the expression of classical ideas rather than as they were previously used to praise patrons, something we mentioned early in this episode. It was the core of Bardic tradition in the Middle Ages and may have been the core of Bardic tradition going back a very long time. If Iolo was the famed adventure of Druidic traditions, Owen was the foundation of Welsh poetry in the modern sense. His mother, Shan Perry, had been a maid at the home of the famous Morris family, some people we've mentioned in a couple of occasions, both for their political influence and for some of the things that they did for Welsh culture. His father, Owen, was an artisan who could compose some poetry himself. Owen, the younger, attended Friars School in Bangor, where he learned Latin and Greek to a high standard. He also took a special interest in poetry, and by the age of 17, according to his own testimony, he could compete against much older poets. His development as a poet was encouraged by Lewis Morris, and this upbringing created an appreciation for medieval Welsh poetry from his youth, probably why he was so heavily influenced by it and wanted to divert from it. He would spend much of his late youth working in the church in various positions, from usher to preacher, and it would be during this time in North Wales that he began to write poetry in Welsh. He went quickly on to become a cleric and an educator, and it was while serving as master of the local school and curate in Uppington that Owen began to attract attention as a poet. According to the Library of Wales biography of him, he moved on to Ostrestry, where he married for the first time in 1747, He would leave in order to escape debt collectors 
and would move to Donington near Shrewsbury, where he composed some of his most famous poems. Eventually, poets began to be influenced by Owen's version of New Welsh understanding of poetry in Welsh, and he and his followers formed a neoclassical school of poetry which, while influenced by the medieval traditions, would create something that would change Welsh poetry for about a century. He would eventually travel to London, continuing to make acquaintances and financing his writings and preachings. As many in this era would do, he was involved with the Cymmeridion, seeking financing from them for a few of his projects, and during this time, and a lot of change that kept happening in his life, his poetry output would fluctuate depending on how stable his situation was. In 1757, Owen obtained an appointment through the efforts of his friends as headmaster of the grammar school attached to the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia, moving to the New World just as it was convulsing under the colonial wars that would see France removed from North America and India, which of course helped create the basis of the Victorian era of the British Empire. After losing his position, because much like a lot of these other poets, he couldn't control his own lifestyle, he then became a tobacco planter and a minister at St. Andrews, Brunswick County, where he remained until his death, and he had died just about, just over five or six years before the beginning of the Revolutionary War. He was and still is someone who remains influential and is someone who the standards and beginnings of Welsh poetry have a lot of to be grateful for and to appreciate with him. Aiolo, for all of his problems and issues, also contributed a massive amount to things that we are going to talk about in the actual Celtic revival coming up including the establishment of the Eisteddfod, which he had created the beginnings of with his ideas about music, poetry, competition, and in the displays of it and how it all became important to Welsh culture in this era. But it's based on a foundation that I fear is a bit sandy. <laughs> And it's unfortunate because I think it's a massive contributor to Welsh culture today and is incredibly important in the modern understanding of how Welsh culture moves forward, something we cannot avoid if we're going to talk about it. But we have to understand that it's based on some fictional ideas, but it doesn't make it any less important. There's a lot of fictional ideas which have become the basis for the way we view ourselves. I mean, the way... Often countries are founded and their beliefs in their foundation are based on mythology. The idea of Rome being based on Romulus and Remus is effectively mythology. It's, it's probably fictional. But yet, that doesn't make it any less important to the understanding of how Romans viewed themselves in the 2nd century or the 1st century. It doesn't change the fact that they believed themselves to be ancestored from this. It doesn't change the fact that Welsh people for a long time thought of themselves as being 
ancestors of Rome themselves, ancestors of Troy, because of the understanding of where Britain came from in their mindset. There's all of these mythological things which establish the later history, and the history of it respects the mythology, but we don't necessarily believe the mythology, as I guess that's, I think that's the best way to describe that. And I can look at it with the way, even in Canada, for example, we look at and evaluate how our country came to be and the reasons behind it, and they're always changing. And the understanding of who we are as a people changes all the time. That's no different in Wales, in England, in Scotland, in Ireland. The way we look at ourselves and our society continues to change, and our cultural understanding continues to change while still respecting what came before. With all that said and done, with a little, little bit of political preaching at the end, let me just uh, once again thank you all for listening. I hope you have a great day. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. You can reach out to me on Twitter. No, I'm not calling it X. Uh, at Welsh History Pod. I am also on places like Threads, but there I am under the name Linstead DM. Uh, which is how you can find me in a lot of other places. And thank you all. Have yourselves a great day and take care. Bye. Welsh History Podcast is a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. To find more information on them, you can do so at evergreenpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts.